Friends, do you love to take the Bible literally? Or, as is more likely, would you like to annoy people who do? Well, we have stumbled on an opportunity to do just that. Friend of the pod, Corey Simon, works with Raw Tools, a group that literally beats swords into plowshares, as the prophet Micah said. Well, really, they beat guns into gardening tools, but they're definitely abiding by the spirit of the text more than anyone else we know. If you'd like to support this ministry, head over to Corey's GoFundMe to help him build his new blacksmith shed and grow a whole new ministry out in southwest Michigan. Go to https colon slash slash gofund.me slash 497A4487. That's https colon slash slash gofund.me slash 497A4487. Or check out the link in our description and help us own a literalist today. Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Matt, Nick, Justin, Sarah, Teddy, and Paul. Thank you for your money. We promise that we will use it to do great things. If you have $5 or more a month to spare and would like to help us do stuff like buy new mics or pay our guests or hire Ian as our director of advancement and a stunning display of nepotism or pay for hosting, you can join our supporters over at patreon.com slash W-T-H-I-A-P. That is patreon.com slash W-T-H-I-A-P. You also get access to our Patreon-only podcast that Ian and I record, which is Pillow Talk, which is a delight. You remember when you used to, we used to bring Ian on and you would pretend like he was not your partner and it would be like it would be like, yeah, Joe's got this secret partner. We haven't said his name, but here's Ian. And for whatever reason, Joe's way happier when Ian's on. <laughs> yeah. What a what a wild time. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot. Uh, I can feel that I am blushing right now because I'm just the, the Puritan in me is like, no, we must not speak of these things. I'm just going to pull that back. Anyway, if you're not in a position to send us financial uh, appreciation, you can send us social media appreciation by sharing us on the platform of your choice or following us on Twitter or Facebook and like commenting and like sending us stuff. Again, Ian is the one who does this the most, but Nick and and Jory do some, which is nice. So yeah. Uh, Or you can just keep listening to us because that is good too. Yes. (laughs) anyway enjoy the show i've got i've got cookies i'm gonna eat some cookies nice what type of cookies just food lion brand chocolate chip cookies (laughs) the most disappointing cookies pastor a podcast about life and set apart ministry each week we sit down to discuss our experiences and challenges in small town parish ministry and in phd work and ask others to join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can 
Those are the type of cookies that are like when they have a a spread at some like university event. Those are the ones that are always left on the platter. Right, right. Come on down to JMU. Give you some food line cookies. Yeah. Um, Whenever people come on as guests after like being listeners and stuff, I'm like, you know, I really want to have, I have some thoughts having listened to your podcast. My first thought is, boy, you better not be coming after us because I will, we will, we will shut you down real fast. <laughs> this is our house. Uh, you will shut them down. I will smile politely and wish for the interaction to be over. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just disappeared. <laughs> Just sink into my chair. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, Abby, can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear yes. you. Yeah. All right. I, I have to get my daughter's Tostino's pizza out of the oven, so I'll be All right, right back. Go do that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. I like there's a lot of Adrea content that I cut out of episodes because <laughs> she just comes in or she just needs something, and you can all you hear Ethan go, ah, "Yes," <laughs> and he just like leaves and goes to do things. I was thoroughly enjoying the talk of uh, of of Daniel Tiger yesterday yes. while i was running errands for work oh. <laughs> as someone who also has spent years being a nanny <laughs> we, i am familiar we watched one yesterday day before yesterday uh where the two-year-old like so daniel like daniel's little sister like crawls up and starts just like fucking with shit because that's what like little babies do and daniel's like mom i don't want margaret to play with us and daniel's mom is like figure it out daniel like it's fine And so then, uh, like, there was a moment where the the nine-month-old crawled over to the two-year-old and, like, just, like, started wrecking the train set. And the two-year-old, like, looked at me with the biggest eyes. And I was like, remember, we have to find a new way to make things fun with babies. And he's like, and he, like, gives them a train and it's fine. So it's amazing how well it works sometimes. Daniel's still a miserable little puke, though. He's not as bad as Caillou, though. Like I I started doing this work when Caillou was still a thing, and no one, no one is more annoying than that whiny little Canadian. Canadians, (laughs) man. (laughs) So that was not what we decided to have you on the podcast for. Listeners, today we have another guest on the podcast. This is my friend Abby from she. We met at seminary over uh, frozen grapes, and we're roommates for two years. And uh, now we are off doing different things in our lives. But friendships can last beyond just physical proximity. Uh, and Abby was listening to the pod a couple weeks ago and had some things to talk through. So Abby's on the pod today, which is very exciting. Thank you, um, for Abby. Me. Do you want to introduce yourself in as much information as you want to share? Sure. Um, as Joe stated, um, I met, we met in uh, seminary. So I, I have briefly attended seminary. I started my master's degree. I have an undergraduate degree in um, theater with a, a concentration on performance. Like most, I think it's like more than almost half millennials who are my age, like had some sort of performance or um, arts degree. Yeah. Um, And then when I turned about 30, I was like, oh, I would like to retire someday and um, have some sort of stability (laughs) in my life. I'm not enjoying auditioning to try and eat. Um, So I did some soul searching and decided to go to school for pastoral clinical mental health. 
Mm-hmm. So um, the big joke with that is, you know, okay, um, are you counseling to sheep? Like, what is this? <laughs> um, are, uh, are you a pastor? Are you a Christian counselor? Um, and there's actually a difference between pastoral counseling and Christian counseling. Uh, I explain it in that if you were going to see a psychologist, they would be uh, assessing you and analyzing you according to how they understand the brain to work. If you go see a clinical mental health therapist, they're looking at you from a behavioral and a neurological perspective. But if you go see a pastoral counselor, there's a holistic aspect there where we welcome behavioral, neurological, and spiritual. So we are trained similarly to a clinical mental health therapist. But in addition to that, uh, we take an extra year of classes and we learn about religion and ways that spirituality can be beneficial and can be harmful to people and what that means in their um, healing processes, especially from trauma. That's what I was going to say. Is that, is there a specific religious trauma aspect to it that you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're required to take all of the classes that a clinical mental health therapist is. And in most States, you need to take a trauma, um, a trauma competency course. Um, And in all of our classes, you know, there's always that aspect of like, you know, what would you do if this was religion based? So um, for me specifically, my jam is um, grief and end of life care. So Um, working with people who are uh, making their grand exit into the great unknown um, or people who've just lost somebody. And there's uh, a lot of interplay there with uh, religion and, uh, and other mental health needs. So, and, you know, my favorite thing about it is that as a pastoral counselor, a lot of times for people who are more um, on the fundamentalist side of Christianity, their pastor and their church life friends are not people that they can go to if they're questioning things to do with their faith. Mm -hmm. So by explaining who I am and what I do, it's a safe place for them to say, you know what, I'm angry at God, or, you know, I'm questioning right now, or, uh, and I can say, all right, I got you. And, you know, and be honest of, I'm not as familiar with your branch of, you know, flavor of spirituality. So tell me about it. Um, You know, I went to seminary for a little bit, thinking that, um, that I was, you know, going to be a, a, a chaplain. And then mm-hmm. I realized Joe was uh, present for this crisis when I realized, you know, I don't think it's my job to bring people to Christ. As our professor had told us that evening in class, it is my job to hear who God is to you and leave space for that. So you know, one of my professors specifically talked about um, the divine unknown, you know, how there are hundreds of different ways to talk about, you know, a God image. And I am most comfortable when you are telling me about what that is for you and what it means for you and how it's beneficial to you or how it's hurtful to you or, um, or, you know, or I can sit with you and you say, I'm an atheist. And I'm like, cool. All right. Tell me what, you know, brings you comfort. So we look at it from a different angle then. Yeah. I, so there, there's an aspect of like the people who come to you are self-selecting. So you're not going to get somebody who's like, please just read the 23rd Psalm with me. That's all that I need today. You're getting people yeah. who are like, I, uh, my pastor is not giving me what I need. I need something else outside of that. Yeah. Yeah. That was like, as you were talking about this, I was like, oh, that's what I love to do as a pastor is I love to hold that space for people to like think through things. And what I, 
the the aspect of pastoral care that was maybe the most difficult for me was when people just wanted me to like read scripture and like mm -hmm. offer a prayer and I'm like well like you can do this on your own <laughs> like there's not but like there's I, I don't know in um in one of my um colloquy sessions one of the leaders said like people kind of expect you to like bring the presence of God with you when you're a pastor and you're visiting you're like the representation of God to mm -hmm. people which mm -hmm. I'm really uncomfortable with like I don't know that that's what I but that's how a lot of people interact with see pastors and see clergy is like yeah. these are the holy people who bring the holiness with them yeah um and for a and lot of people who are feeling vulnerable in that space um having somebody else to be able to to do this especially if they're going through a spot where they think god isn't listening to them mm. um having somebody else be able to come in that they feel might be better heard i mean that in itself is problematic um yeah, it's but it's it's a pretty common thing hmm. so i am uh, i have a lot of questions about yeah. what you do <laughs> um <laughs> because because i remember i remember you like figuring out what you kind of wanted to do. I remember the like phase of like, I'm going to seminary to do this, like something that's along the clergy path, along the getting ordained path. And then yeah. being like, actually, I want to be outside of that. Yeah. So how do you see, or, do you see what you're doing as a ministry? Do you see it as a different form of therapy? Like how, how does it fit into ways that we care for people or like, are all those categories not helpful to you? No, I, that's a great question. I think, um, I think I see it as a different way of doing therapy, honestly. Um, I myself have kind of distanced myself in a lot of ways from like the traditional religiosity that, that I grew up with. Um, and, you know, then taking jobs and being like licensed and things like that, like that makes you more on the clinical side. Mm. Um, I think, you know, right now I'm working in just a clinical mental health clinic. And I think even my, my boss, when she was talking to us about like, you know, how you introduce yourself, your clients don't care about what your degree is. And I was like, oh, but my degree is different. You know, she's a psychologist. So great. It doesn't really matter. But so I'm like, I, I need to discuss with people what a pastoral counselor is. And, and she's like, but you don't though, like they don't really care. And I was like, hmm don't they though? <laughs> yeah. Like, because I mean, it opens the door for that mm -hmm. discussion of, you know, that's what sets me apart. That's why my degree was five years instead of four. Like, <laughs> um, I think I see it more as a different kind of therapy and it's, it's important to me to clarify it because, you know, there aren't that many pastoral counselors. Right. Um, <clears throat> we're kind of a niche group. And when, what made me choose it was that I was really stuck between whether I wanted to be I was going to go into social work or whether I was going to go into ministry um, because everyone had kept telling me that I would be really good at ministry. And um, the time I was really um, actively being uh, uh, really active in the, in the Quaker community in DC. So there are a lot of people who have a ministry degree and, um, and worship with Quakers, but then like Quakers, unstructured Quakers don't have a pastor in their meeting house. So like, then what is your job? Right. Right. Like, <laughs> all of these women that were like, you need to do this. They were not being paid for their, for their ministry work, which is <laughs> kind of important. Um, when, and at the time I was a single person. So like I needed a way to, you know, have a career 
Yes. So um, I just ended up Googling um, different programs in my area and Loyola of Maryland at the time had a pastoral counseling program. And that's when I learned what a pastoral counselor was. And I was like, oh, this is, this is epic. Um, because I, it, the, there's less, I mean, studying to be a pastoral counselor, you have to know where you stand and where you don't. Otherwise, you know, similarly to learning to be a pastor, I think you need to know what your boundaries are so that you can understand what other people's boundaries are, beliefs, and, and what they don't believe, like staying in your lane. I don't know if that's the thing that you guys had to learn, but um, it's, you know, it's not, but yeah. it should be like that. <laughs> you said that. And I was like, wouldn't it be nice if I could set what my lane was and people yeah. understood that that was my lane. But I think when you're the solo pastor at a smaller church, you are all the lanes are your lane and you just hop mm -hmm. between them and hope nobody's coming yeah. up behind you that you can't see. Um, to push the car metaphor really far. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Ethan, did you want to jump in with something? I saw you unmute. No, I just unmuted so that folks could hear my, hmm, you know, as, <laughs> as folks are going. I figured that was good. But yeah, but I will say like, like Joe and I have talked, you know, one of the things that we've discovered, particularly like Joe said, particularly in small and like small town ministry, is that uh, I think often like traditional pastors become general practitioners for the town you know and yeah and we we chat like i remember when i served my, in my first appointment um have, having uh, a a gentleman in town call me for tax advice you know just because right. i not like it's not like i have a background in that but yeah. but like you know i think that for smaller well somebody you can trust or for smaller communities in which um, uh, particularly like United Methodist pastors who are, you know, who, unless they're, they're just gone to licensing school have received their MDiv. Like there's, there's a, I think often pastors are the most quote unquote educated people in a small town, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that that's, uh, one of the, one of the reasons why we don't really have a lane, <laughs> You know, when we when I think Joe's totally right, like I think that if we if we had a lane that that we were never expected to maybe jump out of professionally, uh, that might be a sign that we're in a healthier town. Also, like so. I'm, I'm listening, like I said, I've been you know listening off and on to a couple of different things that you guys are talking about. And I can't help but think like if if your schooling gave you better boundaries and like and mm -hmm. if churches recognized your boundaries and you had other people to do that stuff that, you know, burnout would be a lot less of a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, like you were only at Wesley for three semesters, two semesters. I think, I think I was there for four, but. Uh, we t I remember hearing a lot about boundaries. Like that was a word that was said a ton. Yeah. And so I was like, great, I'm going to have boundaries when I go into ministry. And, and, and I set some and I kept some really well and I like as I look back over that year and a half a lot of my boundaries created resentment that was never communicated to me like people mm. wanted me to be giving more of myself in some situations uh but less of myself from the pulpit but like spending more time with this like any any boundary that I set was not the boundary that they wanted me to set at all yeah. but also they were like well take care of yourself and they just had no idea what that was mm -hmm. so like there need we need to train congregations on how to like respect pastoral boundaries like that's I think that's the big step 
Yes. And I would add respecting their own boundaries because it's something that we're talking about a lot, but just like you said, they didn't honestly understand what it meant for you to have boundaries. They probably don't understand what it means for them to have boundaries. Yeah. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Um, And why they're healthy and why they're necessary. Yeah. Well, and then talking about the Quakers and like, there's not a professional clergy person. Well, there's no boundary there. Like all of the work of that Quaker community is being done by volunteers who are necessarily going to have very porous boundaries between their personal life and what they're doing for the community. And that's, that's hard. And we expect a lot from our lay people. Like every time Ian does anything with his conference, I'm like, he's spending so much time on this and they're not paying him anything for it. Like it's astounding. Yeah. So, so Abby, um, what was it not, not to derail this part of the conversation? Cause I, I, I think it's really great. What was it, um, in the stuff you were listening to the stuff that's happening in your life, you know, the things going on in your brain, uh, that, that inspired you to go, I really need to get on this podcast to explain to these people what's going on. Um, oh, but man. in all seriousness, I'm interested. I, I yeah. what, what, what's, it was, what's on your mind? Oh, I wish I could remember which one. I, I should have just stopped listening after that episode <laughs> and like kept it fresh. Um, but you guys were specifically talking about um, white churches and um, racial issues. Um, maybe it was three weeks ago. Um, it was my first introductory to your podcast and I've seen Joe post about this for a while and I'm like, I need to listen to that. And it was just one day that I was like, I'm going to listen to that right now. And I, I, I ended up messaging her because I'm like, oh my God, this is maddening to listen to you guys talk, feel like I'm also there and I can't say a word because this is my jam. Like, <laughs> and, um, you know, it's great and I love it. And, and, you know, that's a compliment if it wasn't coming mm. across as one, but no, um, I ended up messaging Joe and being like, listen, what you guys didn't talk about was like the impact that racism has had on the, on, on Protestant white church communities on themselves and then then that's and I said is there a way that we can talk about this in in a space that is not at all um lessening the horrors that we've had on communities of color um but also making space to be like when we have spent generations of time um trying to make ourselves better than these people over here what we've really done is create a community full of distrust and you mm. have communities of people who are then meeting up every Sunday and being like, I'm great. I'm doing wonderfully. How are you doing? Right. Mm-hmm. And there's no authenticity. And, and not to say no, this is a generalization, obviously. Like, you know, people listening are going to be like, that's not true in my church. And you're probably right. But I think that there are a lot of churches that um, there's the keeping up with the Jones- Joneses mentality versus being able to have a space where you can come in and say, I am broken. I am not okay. And where there's space for that, where you're not going to feel judged. So like that really spoke to me listening to you guys talk that like, there's this whole other aspect that we're not even discussing that I think is part of what has broken church. 
Mm. Yeah, I think so. Before we dig into this, I want yeah. I want to affirm again that like this is not to say that really the white people are the victims of racism. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. At all. Nope. Nope. No. Nope, but nope. to say that like um, and, and it doesn't need to be the biggest thing we're talking about now. This is like a tiny side note over here and ways yeah. we could make that community better. Absolutely. I but I also think that it's important for white people to notice that like racism is not is one not a black person's problem or a person yeah. of color in general's yeah. person problem but right. it's also something that like impacts us too like we benefit from dealing with racism it's not that we're mm-hmm. just doing something to help people over there like this is yeah. something that makes the whole world better including our lives better sure because i i saw a friend post uh somebody that I went to seminary with actually post like a genuinely a white person who was upset about critical race theory explain to me why you're upset about it because I don't get it like I just don't understand um and I was like well I'm not one of those people but nobody's commenting so I'm gonna I'm gonna comment and be like what I really think is people think that critical race theory is going to be a detriment to white people and is going to help black people and they whether or not they understand that like that's where the imbalance is it's really they think that this is going to hurt them instead of this is going to help all of us so like what you point out is that when we deal when we deal with like the colonial era which gives us racism and yes, colonialism and all yeah. this mm-hmm. yeah and like where the puritans come out of like exactly. where this yeah. where a lot of those really um unhealthy ideas well the unhealthy ideas about spirituality that we're dealing with right now <laughs> like yeah. that all comes that's all kit and caboodle together when we start to deal with that we start to make all of our lives better Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, that that's absolutely right. Like that it is a, a, a white person's problem and that it is impacting us in ways that we are not even aware of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it's toxic all around. Yeah. So can you create like, so I'm, I'm thinking about a lot of the churches that I've been a part of, like there, I guess there has been some aspect of the keeping up with the Joneses, but a lot more of it is this like self-policing in terms of being like the best Christian around, you know, like you are, you don't cuss, you don't drink, you don't do all of those things, but also like you um, don't show, again, you don't show any doubt. You don't show any vulnerability. Yeah. Like, how do you deal with that in a church? Like, how do you, do you, is that something that's fixable or is that like, how do you, like, how do you, other than like sitting down and sending everybody to a pastoral counselor so that you can be rich and famous, like, how do we, what do we do with it? That is an excellent question. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly don't, nothing's coming to mind right off the bat. I think it's a systemic issue of like, again and and we see it in larger culture as well like not being authentic so Mm. in what ways can we encourage people to be authentic and that takes vulnerability which is scary Mm -hmm. um especially when you know if if this is the way that you've grown up and you haven't questioned it and you're comfortable with it and you're not really thinking about it um you know as we all know change is terrifying for like most people um so, I mean, I leave that to 
to you guys what do you think like i'm i'm not i am the i can speak on authenticity and toxic culture and you know trauma and these things um and right. and i can point them out when i see them but i wouldn't know how to fix them in a church i didn't get that far in seminary <laughs> <laughs> um i i have a couple of thoughts i guess i think that the so i i think that shame plays a really important role in I think actually gun to my head, I think shame plays the primary role of all um, like church interaction, spiritual life, everything of at least mainline Protestant yeah. churches. Um, I think things change and have changed over the last four or five years in evangelical worlds, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. Although I still think shame is really operative. But like, but I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I think that there's, there's a ton of shame, you know, that kind of circulates around that governs how mainline Protestant folks act in church and with each other and things like that. And I think that that shame is, is something that helps fuel why, uh, folks, uh, uh, are not as interested in sort of questioning or not as interested in in sort of showing a a uh, uh have, having a sort of a, this face right i think about my my wonderful grandma who i love she's mellowed out considerably since she uh was raising my mom but my mom tells the story of uh her smacking my mom like when my mom was 16 years old like in the parking lot at church just like just like open palm smacking her in the face you know for really just you know for for my mom being 16 you know just 16 year old being 16 and uh then she took her into the church and the moment they got in the church my grandma held my mom's hand kissed her on the cheek you know, broader, like, like it was as if nothing happened, you know, it was as if, and, and the reason why was because they were in church, you know, well, we're in church now, like, you know, we're, we're happy. We're very happy because we're in church. And, uh, and that's a, a, an interesting, that's an interesting dynamic that I, you know, I, I think about like, I, I try to understand why that's the case. Like, why that's something like that dynamic is still present now, you know, in among church people, among me, you know, I've had, I've had uh, arguments with my wife or, or have gotten mad at my daughter before I had to go into church to be a pastor. And it's not like, it's not like it makes sense. It, it would be inappropriate for me to go barging into the church angry, you know, like yeah. that's, inappropriate i think particularly when it's when it's about you know my life you know and but but i i wonder i wonder how i wonder what is i do think it's shame but i wonder what then the alternative is like is the alternative a kind of emotionally chaotic space in which it really is come as you are if you've just had a big fight with your partner come on in and continue to have a big fight with your partner. You know, is it, and, and like, and I, 
I wonder, like, like maybe if that's the case, maybe, maybe that maybe church should be those things. But I don't know. I, I think that the Wesleyan in me that that is interested in things like holiness or is interested in not not as this inauthentic, we hide our feelings kind of a thing, but in a, in a we strive for understanding and and gentleness and peace and and stuff like that i i just i wonder what how all that plays in i don't know yeah i wonder if there's like a happy medium to be found there though like i wonder if you can go in and be like you know if we were able to say to our partner i want you know we're gonna have to put a pin in this and come back to it later um and i'm not gonna hold your hand right now and maybe I'm going to sit a little farther away from you than I would on a normal day because I need my space um, because it, it wouldn't be appropriate to come in and start, you know, carrying on on whatever you were, but like leaving space to be like, you know, authentically, this is where I am right now. I, sure. um, you know, and, and, and it's different. I think being leading the church, right. Because yeah, yeah, like, you know, anytime you go into your job, if you take your personal life with you, to a degree that's problematic um but um i think if there's like if there's space to be like you know it's i've had i'm having a day sure yeah 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 i that's what i was gonna say is i think that there we um uh, what i see a lot in people who are like dealing with uh, emotional awareness and intelligence in their own trauma for the first time is it's a swing from everything's fine to everything's awful and every second of every day I need you to know everything's awful when really like the place we want to land is that emotional regulation of saying yeah. like well, I'm angry at you but like this is not the space for it we're going to put a pin in it until we can come back to it um or like honestly wouldn't it be great if you like had the the freedom to be like you know maybe maybe I don't need to go pretend at church today <laughs> like I just am gonna take the break from church today and we're gonna like talk this out because we need to we're like attending a service one hour a week isn't your main priority yeah. um which I think for a lot of people our age it's not like a lot of people would just be like you know what we're we're having a moment let's have this moment and then go to brunch afterwards and like I don't need to deal with all the people at church who expect me to be different mm -hmm. um but it would be nice like if you're going in a small group and like you walk in a small group still with like the cloud around you and people are like what's going on like can we talk with you about this uh because a lot of small group is just checking in with people and kind of like being that mm -hmm. support network for people um I, but like as a pastor you need a space that is not your church congregation to do that mm -hmm. which yeah. I think we all know um yeah where I, where I get caught around these authenticity conversations is that like as a pastor I did try to model a lot of authenticity um in my sermons in small group in a lot of places where like I'm not asking for like emotional validation from my people I'm just saying that like here's an example of a time where like things were rough and I was struggling with like this or this, or like, here's an example of a time where I learned from something. So I'm not like using a congregant as an example. I'm using myself as an example, which is what I was told was like the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that got thrown back in my face on multiple occasions. Like my church did not care for my authenticity, even though they asked for it, they didn't know what to do with it. Um, and so like, then it goes back to training congregations again, like, 
it's not enough to just ask for something. It's uh, you have to like know what you're asking for. And I think that happens a lot across everything with new pastors. They want you to start a new program. They want you to do like these 10,000 things. But when those 10,000 things start changing, because they will just inevitably change something, suddenly there's a problem because they didn't know what they were asking for. Um, Yeah, so that's where I get caught with it. Is that like they're instead of being like our full completely messy authentic selves which is not always the appropriate thing to bring on sunday morning i mean like bring yourself but also be able to regulate um Mm -hmm. we end up with this new acceptable or this new ideal which is the let me speak from like the difficulties of my experience like i'm in a good place now but let me talk about how bad it was which can be just as inauthentic because like i was a mess when I was a pastor, I think I was a mess through all of seminary. Like I was still going through a lot of stuff. And even though like I was able to get on meds, I was able to go to therapy. I was able to work with a lot of stuff. Like I, the, the entirety of what I was dealing with was not appropriate to share with my congregation. Um, but when I would share bits and pieces of it, it was not also not accepted. So uh, anyway, that's just me complaining again about my job. I think <laughs> but, like, though too joe like you had an important um you made an important point a couple weeks ago when you were talking about like the expectations of you leaving right and how you told people you were going to find something that was a better fit um because that's that's what they needed to hear what i was thinking actually oh good because i was not thinking any of this okay yeah um i'm seeing a correlation with that like and i thought about this the other day i'm gonna bring in a um a cultural bit we my husband and I were watching um uh Bo Burnham's new special Um, I haven't seen it yet if you struggle with mental health think twice before you watch it because it can be triggering um it was very good it was genius but you are watching somebody who you uh, if you follow Bo Burnham at all he was a comedian for years he is a comedian and a musician and he's very brilliant um, he said a lot of uh, controversial things in the past. And so he, on camera for this special, uh, recorded himself coming to terms with mental illness, depression, loneliness, being in the pandemic with no one else around. And he just leaves the camera rolling. And I think part of the brilliancy of this and the social commentary is, you know, people kept saying, we need more content from you. We need more content from you. And so he just gave them content, but he didn't do it in a way that a lot of people would think is um, um, taking care of the audience. I, I can't mm. think of the word that I'm trying to think of because you know if you're going to bring something that's distressing to the audience, it's also then generally accepted. It's your idea to leave them in a place where they're okay. Similarly to therapy, right? Like I'm not going. If I say we have ten minutes left in the session, I'm not going to ask you about your trauma and take me to that place of trauma. And then the the clock goes up and I'm like, well, I'll see you next week, right? Like that would be unethical. Um, So I think in this, in the special, he just ends it. And so you're left being like, oh, I'm gonna hold this for you now. Um, So there's that question of like, what's ethical here? Am I going to leave the congregation to see like oh I we don't know where Joe is going Pastor Joe's going and we don't know if she's going to be okay and part of that is our fault um or I feel better knowing that 
Joe is going on to something that's a better fit for her. And so, you know, is that a kindness or is that a, a professionalism or both? Or what is that? It definitely feels like it was a kindness and a professionalism. Like, like it was both of those things at once uh, that it would be, even if, like, even if it's a, like, it feels like a messy breakup, there's still a, like, I want to care for you though. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to just burn everything out on the way down the door. Uh, it was the way out the door. And I feel like me being like, listen, I'm leaving. I don't have a job. I just can't be here anymore is burning everything down on the way out the door. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that match and yeah. you know? anyway, yeah. so that's all it. That's what I do. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> you know, and, then I, and then I'd quit. Yeah. I have a fear that I do that. I have a, like, I have a deep fear that that's why I left my church is like, my church just didn't love me the way I expected to be loved. And, and I couldn't handle it. I'm not resilient enough. So I just, no, no, no. You want my professional like opinion? Yeah. yeah. Give me your, Abby, go, for it. go for it. Abby's <laughs> like, you're right, Joe. <laughs> no, as usual, you're wrong, Joe. That that's the you, tiny part in your in your uh, head that tells you that you aren't good enough and uh, that you are needy. And uh, when in reality, you are asking for the same respect that would be granted to someone else who is not your gender or social political leanings. Um, so the truth in that is that you were not a good fit for that church. You knew that you were most likely not going to be a good fit for that church and you went down there to do it anyway and give it a shot which is brave and you gave it a shot longer than you should have you were unsafe at points and you made your way through and you did it with as much grace as you could muster while dealing with your own demons so um my professional and uh uh, both friendship opinion because i love you dearly and know you in probably ways a lot of other people don't um is that um, you did the best that you could and you left there in as much of a beautiful way as you could. Yeah, which, Mm -hmm. thank you. That's good and important. Uh, And I'll just save the audio file for later. Um, (laughs) When I I can feel, when I can unprofessionally feel emotions off mic. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think. So the question that kind of comes to me out of all of that is that, Congregations are not good at handling the emotions of anybody. Most most white congregations are not good at handling the emotions of anybody in the congregation, sure. unless they've done a lot of work to be able to handle trauma, hold emotions, be patient with people, be gracious, all this kind of stuff. So it, so it feels kind of irresponsible in a way, or this is something that I have said in the past, it feels irresponsible to send people right out of seminary who have maybe like just put their faith back together after going through the process of seminary. And suddenly you are in this place that cannot handle all of the things that you learned, especially the emotional intelligence you learned. Yeah. So what do we do with that? Because that's most young clergy are going to be sent to churches that are not emotionally open. Like, is it just that we give young clergy so much support outside of the congregation that they're able to like help grow the congregation in this way? Or do we like train older clergy? Like, this is my thing about like doing a lot of work like in terms of going to therapy or in terms of like working through your trauma or like just figuring out your shit. Like that work takes time. 
it takes time regardless of where you're at in your life journey. And like every pastor who hasn't done that is going to need to like take a sabbatical at some point to like deal with this. Like, is there a practical way to deal with, with this disconnect between what we really need in in order to be whole people and what congregations are able to offer? I think we are at a crossroads at the moment um, to use an incredibly like cliche um (laughs) term but I think the generations coming up both like millennials and those people coming after us these people are the people that are doing the work emotionally um and I think right now what we're seeing is um is a big gap because the people of our generation have put have had the privilege right to um work on ourselves more and like and the and the grace around our friends to be like yeah I'm gonna go to therapy right like generations before didn't have that so not to like um shame older older individuals that's not right either but that wasn't a part of their culture um for a long time so it's harder for them to do that work because they also have to unpack the shame as Ethan was saying of even having to ask for help so um you know, the, the socially acceptable way to deal with trauma and shame and um, any um, mental health or emotional needs was just to lock it up and pack it away and, you know, keep going. And that was where our society was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, so now that we are transitioning into a society of people who are more like, if you have shit to unpack, go do it. Um, and more welcoming to that kind of health need. Um, I think we're seeing a gap here between people who have had the ability, who have sought help and had the ability, even if it's just reading self-help books and you know, and doing this, the doing it on your own on how to deal with your emotion and to recognize your own emotions and what's my stuff and what's your stuff. That's huge. So yeah, dealing with people who are not as emotionally intelligent as you, that's, that's a big deal that I think is going to fix itself in the next 15 years. But until then, <laughs> yeah, until it's then. an interesting problem to have. Yeah. You think 15, 20 years? Cause I, I feel like uh, actually, I know for a fact that the predecessor at my church uh, thought that like racism was a problem that was just going to generationally fix itself. Uh, and so like, do we think that uh, is this, is it really that cultural culture has shifted that much or is it le- like the training is now available? So at least it's going to look different than it does right now. It'll be interesting to see how much it changes. I know that especially for people who are able to go see a counselor a lot of the time it has to do with economic availability Mm -hmm. um you know a lot of people can't come can't get the help that they need because they don't have insurance or because they you know don't have have the money for it that's awful um but so i think that there's going to be a shift with that until unless Mm -hmm. we go into socialized medicine um (laughs) and like letting people take time off of work yeah. Uh, I mean, well, uh, plenty of counselors work on the weekends and, and at night. So um, finding somebody who's a good fit that has availability, that's not as much a hardship as finding the funds to be able to make it that's a priority. Cool. And and the cultural thing too, like we're talking, you know, I'm looking at this as, you know, I 
was raised a middle-class white girl. So like, you know, I'm looking at it from a different lens than other people who are maybe so, you know, racially, culturally, or socially not as privileged as I am. Um, it's also de very dependent on your culture. Some cultures are still not at all welcoming to this kind of thing, you know, and, and, and terrified of, you know, oh, so-and-so is going for counseling, what's going on, right? Like, right. Know, are they a danger to me or others? Right. Um, so, I mean, I, yeah, it could be very idealistic for me to say, I think it's something that's going to fix itself, but I, I do think also that it is going to change. Um, I think yeah. it's becoming more socially acceptable um, to a point where like I routinely hear people be like if you, you know I, I was seeing this person and then they had shit and I was like well if you can't handle your shit like good luck to you like That's yes true. young people please do this <laughs> please take care of yourselves and set up healthy boundaries but and that brings it full circle to what we started like talking about with boundaries like I think that's something the fact that we even that it's even a buzzword that we're talking about in society um, is a great thing it wasn't something I heard about as a teenager. It wasn't something I was good about. It wasn't something my own family is very good at. So, um, you know, I think personally, I was raised with like, don't be selfish. Yeah. Um, and I remember my first friend in college who was like, you know, being selfish gets a really bad rap. But in the end, it's really just taking time to take care of yourself. And how are you going to take care of other people if you can't take care of yourself? Um, you know, yeah. How many times did I give you that talk about filling up, unpacking your stuff so you can fill your own jug, right? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, and like, you gave me the talk a lot. I don't know that it ever completely stuck because I continued doing all the same stuff I was doing. Yeah, yeah but... that's fine. Yeah. Uh, but at least now I have like uh, plenty of time to slow down, which has been its own thing. So, yeah. Yeah. That's true. Uh, well, thanks for another therapy session here on What the Hell's Pastor. It's working out well for everybody. Uh, are we, we are close to the hour. Do anything, Ethan, anything you want to circle back on? Anything that kind of popped up over the course of the conversation? Uh, I don't think so. I thought this was really good. This is fun. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. true. Well, it can be, it can be the length that it is. Abby, do you have anything else you want to jump in with before we sign off for this episode? No, this was great. Thanks guys for having me on. And um, yeah. I was really excited to, you know, exercise that pastoral part of my, my degree. So um, you did great. Exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Get included in that, like what the hell is a pastor part? Me. That's true. Yeah. You are, you are definitely. You are. Yes. And that's something that like the world needs to understand is that like, it's not just people who preach on Sunday morning, like, and honestly, you're going to do more pastoral work than a lot of pastors ever do. That's oh, it's great. Well, Ethan. I can sign us off. Yeah. Friends, this has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? Thank you for listening. We are Ethan and Joe and Abby, and we will see you next time. You know, I just kept saying the word poop over and over. So I'd like, I'd like highlight, take it down and replace all, you know, replace all instances of God with poop. <laughs>